Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, it, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn away many, sorry, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to you to... And so I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words. Many which will be fulfilled, which will be fulfilled in, this, in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we see your faithfulness to, fill, to fulfill your promises to your people. And Lord, we see that, um, that, that although heaven was silent for 400 years, yet, Lord, in the appointed time, you have decreed that, that you would send your Son, the Messiah, into the world. And in order to prepare your people for his coming, that you would send John, the greatest among those who have been born among women. You would send him into the world as a, as a herald, as a, as a forerunner to prepare the way for the coming king. And Lord, we ask that as we approach this passage of Scripture this morning, that you would prepare our hearts to hear of your faithfulness. And Lord, to see how you are faithful to us. Lord, help us to see how you are faithful to your people at all times. And help us, Lord, to see what you are what you're doing in the world and what you will do in the world as we await not the coming of the king but his return 
We pray this as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here at the start of Luke's gospel account, he introduces us to a very important figure. And he's not as remotely as important as the one who is yet to come, but he is very important nonetheless. In fact, he was so great that later in Jesus, later in Luke, Jesus, the one who was yet to come, testified to his greatness, saying, I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John, Luke 7, 28. So here we have the Son of God declaring that John was among the greatest men who ever lived. This is high praise indeed, coming from the highest of sources. But John's greatness resulted from his testimony of the greatness of Jesus. John's greatness wasn't in and of himself. John's role was to prepare the way for the coming of the Christ. Now, as we talk about these things this morning, it's a, a special privilege for me to be able to, to proclaim the, the coming of the Christ, and especially in God's providence as we're doing it during this Advent season. Luke 3 tells us that John went to the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the way that he is preparing the people the, of the people of Christ for the coming of Christ. And so when the people asked him if he was the Christ, he responded, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So right away we see that, that in John's ministry that there is a dividing that is taking place, that the Lord Jesus is coming to, to bring his elect into, into his kingdom, but those who, are his, those, those who are on the outside will be rejected. They will be, be cast away for all eternity. Now, of course, John's most famous baptism would follow his baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so in this, he played a vital role in, in Jesus fulfilling righteousness. But that's not all that John the Baptist helped to fulfill. John the Baptist's very arrival on the scene was evidence that God was fulfilling his promises. That God was faithful. That redemption was at hand. For 400 years, heaven had been silent. From the end of the Old Testament, with the close of the book of Malachi, God had not spoken to his people. Now, so much had taken place during that time. Israel had, had been under the, Persian, under the reign of, of the Persian king Darius III. And then came the Greek Alexander the Great. Then the, Egypt, the Egyptian Ptolemaic dynasty. Then the Syrian Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. Then the Jewish Maccabean revolt until the Romans took control and Herod, Herod the, the Romans' puppet king, ruled in Israel. During that whole period, God had been silent. And this was the state of affairs with, with Herod reigning for the Romans when Luke picks up the story of redemption history with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. 
Luke's testimony of this announcement parallels many of the miraculous births that we see in the scriptures. We, we've seen several of them in the book of Genesis, especially Isaac and Jacob. But like this one, those births were announced with Isaac and Jacob. It, there was a, an, uh, an angelic messenger, a barren wife, a promise of important deeds done by the one whose birth was announced. But this child, John, was far greater than those giants of Israel's history. But there are, there are even more parallels with another birth. Another birth announcement, one that we're going to be looking at next week, Lord willing. The one who follows is infinitely greater still. Not only is the same angelic messenger the, the one who delivers the message to Zechariah here, but this is the same angelic messenger who is going to deliver the message to Mary in our next section. Also, we have these, these birth announcements to women who shouldn't have been able to give, have been able to give birth. One is, is barren and another one is a virgin. And we, we also have the parents being told the name of the child. There's also the common element of, of fear at this birth announcement. But there's also doubt from the one who receives the message. Now in this passage, I see four key stages in the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And these same four stages are there in the, the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ. The first is that the, the parents are introduced. We see this in verses 5 to 7. Then the, angels, the angel appears in verses 8 to 12, and then the message is delivered in verses 13 to 18, and then the, the promise is guaranteed in verses 18 to 25. Now these four points are going to be our same four points next week as well. 400 years of silence is about to be broken. God keeps His promises. He is fulfilling His plan of redemption. And so the birth of John is the beginning of this fulfillment. The, the, the next part of that fulfillment, the, the final part of that fulfillment, will, will be coming in, the, in the, the coming of Christ and then in the, re, the return of Christ. And so this, is, this, this story tells us broad, sweeping scope of, of, of what God is doing in redemption history. But it's also the personal, intimate story of two people, two individuals, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And again, we see in this one of the, the key points of, of, what, of what God is doing and, and the, one of the emphases that, that Luke has in his gospel account is that God is working in and through individuals. These two people in the middle of God's redemptive plans. So this is a story about how God breaks into history to fulfill his purposes. And this morning we're going to hear from the, the herald to the herald with the call to prepare the way for the preparer. And this Luke is revealing for us the wonder of the Messianic age. So first of all, in verses 5 to 7, we see the parents introduced. As I mentioned in the introduction, Luke provides a time stamp for us. It is in the days of Herod, king of Judea. After the destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jews by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, King Cyrus of Persia, as, as the Persians had defeated the Babylonians, then allowed the Jews to go back to Israel and to begin the, to repair the temple. Work was completed under Darius III, and the temple was dedicated around the year 516 B.C., 
But this temple was a very modest structure compared to the glory of Solomon's temple earlier in the Jewish history. Nonetheless, even still, it was a, it was a glorious day in the life of Israel. They, they, they were celebrating that, that the, the temple sacrifices could now continue. Many, have read, many of us read this, uh, this narrative in Ezra chapter 6 this past week as, as part of our Bible reading plan. For 400 years, while God was silent, there was no prophetic voice in Israel. And Gentiles trampled the temple precinct. And then in, thir- in uh, B.C. 39, Herod gained ascendancy and took control of the temple in a violent battle. And he undertook to refurbish the temple in 20 B.C. And all the main work was, was, continue- was completed in a year and a half. Work would continue all the way to A.D. 63. During this period, priests were free to continue to make sacrifices and offerings. So now Luke picks up the story here somewhere in the first few years A.D. Enter Zechariah. His name was most appropriately means Yahweh has remembered again. What a good name for this priest. Yahweh has remembered again. After God had been silent for so long, it is clear that God is remembering again. God is remembering his people again. God is remembering his promises again. Now it's not as though God had forgotten. God never forgets. But what, he, what we're seeing here is that God is being faithful and, and, and it's taking place according to his time frame, according to his plan of redemption history. So then Luke tells us that Zechariah goes into the temple. As a, as a priest, his, his, uh, his life has been dedicated to temple service. Now we read elsewhere that there's 24 divisions of priests under the, 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 uh, under the Old Testament ceremonial law, and, and they served on a rotational basis. We also read about the fact that there were these, these divisions in Ezra chapter 2 during this past week that, that only four divisions had returned from captivity in Babylon. And these four divisions were further subdivided to bring the number again to 24, and they were given the original names. Each division would serve twice a year for a week at a time. We're told that Zechariah was married to Elizabeth and and that she was also of priestly descent. Luke tells us that they were both righteous before God and that they were blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This means that they were morally upright, that they were faithful. It doesn't mean that they were sinless, but that they walked faithfully before the Lord. Now, so here we have a priest who is married to the daughter of a priest. And this is, this is also again saying that, they're, that they are, are righteous and blameless. They're, they're, they're being presented as being exemplary. They're presented as, as, as being God-honoring people. And these details are presented because of what we're told next. That they were childless. That Elizabeth was barren. Now, childness, childlessness would have been a, a stigma to them in that culture. The fact that, that, that they were unable to have children was, would have been seen as a sign of, of God's reproach, that God was opposed to them. The fact that they were advanced in years 
doubles down on the fact that it was very unlikely that this situation was going to change. I wonder, who does this remind you of? Someone we spent a lot of time talking about just, just months ago. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, they, 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 were, they, they were also grieved over many years of, of childlessness. And, and it was, was even more, um, more challenging in Abraham's case because he had been promised that, that he was going to have a seed. And, and, and so what we see, when we, when we see these sorts of things happening, we see that God is doing something different. God has a better plan than, than just the, the normal state of affairs. And so we, here we have, here we have Zechariah and Elizabeth, who, who had obviously been, been grieving over the years of childlessness, despite the fact that God had a better plan. I wonder how many tears they shed over not being able to have children. Would they have gladly experienced that grief and, and those, those tears about the, the years of childlessness if they had known what the Lord was going to do? They had a sense during those years that God had a better plan. I, I wonder if you've carried a burden that made you wonder whether God had deserted you or whether that, that made you wonder whether others wondered whether God had deserted you. Maybe you're carrying that burden right now. It could be childlessness. It, it could be singleness. It could be a health burden. It could be a financial burden. It could be a, a sin burden. But if you knew what the Lord was going to do in and through your circumstances, wouldn't you rejoice if you could step back and see the big picture? Wouldn't you even gladly bear grief and reproach because of God's greater plan? Well, I have some good news for you. He is. He is. If you are a Christian, you can be confident that God is sovereign and that He is wise and that He loves you and that He is going to work everything, even your heaviest burdens, for His glory and for your good. So take heart. The sovereign God of the universe is for you in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you are carrying a burden, don't assume that God is against you. Whenever God withholds a blessing in one area in the life of a believer, he's looking to bless you in another. The Lord does not arbitrarily allow trials in the lives of his children. You don't know whether he's going to change your situation tomorrow. That was true for Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's, it's true for us. It was true for those 400 years when, when heaven was silent. That God had a plan and that God would fulfill it in his perfect timing. Well, then we see in verses 8 to 12 that the angel appears. Zechariah's division was on duty in the temple. Now, there are many priests in, in each division and, and not enough sacred duties for each priest to have something to do, so they'd cast lots to see who would do what. And Zechariah was chosen by lots to emper, enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Proverbs 16.33 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. 
We don't exactly know what, what lots were, but, but they would, there would be some, kind of like dice, perhaps, that they would actually throw down, and, and what, the way they landed would, would tell them what the will of the Lord was. And now, we don't do that anymore because we have the, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but at that time, this was the, the way that things were done. And so in the casting of these lots, God was providentially decreeing this event at this moment. This was Zechariah's time. Offering incense was a, a huge privilege in the life of a priest. In fact, it, that they're only allowed to do it once in their whole lifetime. And many priests never got to do this. This would be the most important moment in Zechariah's life. But he had no idea just how important. Every day in the morning and evening, incense was offered, but this was no ordinary day. Zechariah would have dressed in his priestly garb and, and collected fire from, the, the, offering, or from the, the, the altar of the burnt offering outside of the sanctuary. And, and while the multitude gathered outside to pray, Zechariah and, and four other priests would enter into the holy place. And then they would leave and Zechariah would be left alone. Or at least he thought he would be alone. The only items in the room were the altar, the golden lampstand, and the table of the showbread. In front of him would have been the curtain separating the, the holy place from the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided. Zechariah approached the altar to burn the incense with the smoke that symbolized the prayers of the saints ascending to the throne of God. Now what took place inside the holy place as the incense was being offered up was a reflection of what was taking place outside with the prayers of the multitude. But what were the people praying for? Well, one of the, the most prominent prayers of the people at that time was the arrival of the Messiah and deliverance from captivity. Well, then there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. We read about this sort of thing happening repeatedly in the scriptures, but, but don't let familiarity with these events diminish your wonder at what is taking place. Here was this priest in the middle of performing the most sacred duty of his life. The most important thing he would ever do, as he thought. Well, I don't think it's a stretch to, to suggest that, that Zechariah would have been wound up pretty tight. This coupled with the fact that, that heaven had been silent for 400 years would have ampli amplified the shock at the sudden appearance of this angelic being. Zechariah was troubled. Zechariah was terrified. And, and I'm sure you would be too. This is a completely normal response. And the, this response of, of fear to the Lord and his, his works is, is, common one, is a common one. We see it often in conjunction with the, the birth accounts of John the Baptist and Jesus. We'll see it next week in verses 29 and 30 as the angel appears to Mary. She's afraid. It's also going to take place at the birth of John. In 165, uh, the appearance of the angelic host to the shepherds in, in 2.9. And in Luke, we also see many individuals responding this way to Jesus. Peter, when he meets Jesus in chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration in 
We also see in response to the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts as the, at the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 verses 5 and 11. And the Philippian jailer in, the, in response to Paul and Silas' deliverance in Acts 16, 29. So again, this, this response of fear is something that we see repeatedly in the book of Luke and also in the book of Acts, also written by Luke. But we see the angel here is, is not just providing, is not, the response is not just of fear, but the angel actually comforts him. The angel actually comforts Zechariah. So we see, we see him telling him when the message is going to be delivered in verses 13 to 17. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. So the angel has good news that's going to lead to the good news. God calms our fears also through the gospel. Yet holy fear remains in the heart of a believer. God has heard Zechariah's prayer. But what prayer do you think it was that God had heard? What was the content of Zechariah's prayer? Well, some speculate that, that he was praying for a child and that the Lord had heard at that moment and responded. But that's really unlikely because, now granted he had, I'm sure, prayed for a child again and again earlier on, but it would have been unlikely that he was praying now because when the angel says he's going to have a child, he doubts the message. So he's probably not praying for that. More likely, Zechariah is, is praying for the redemption of Israel. More likely, Zechariah is, is praying the same prayers that were on the lips as those who were worshiping outside. So when the angel says that Zechariah's prayers had been heard, he, he could have been referring to that, to, to, to prayers for the deliverance of Israel. But it's, it's also possible that he could have been referring to earlier prayers that Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed many years prior for a son or for a child. Daryl Bach explains that God was tackling two problems at once. He's dealing with something absent from Zechariah's personal life while dealing with Israel's prayer and pleas. God answers sometimes come at a surprising time, in a surprising place, in a surprising way, end quote. Friends, there's something special that happens when God's people pray. When God's people pray, God has decreed that he would answer their prayers. God has promised that, that he would answer your prayers. Now granted, sometimes God answers prayers in a negative. Sometimes God answers prayers right away, but, but quite often, in fact, arguably most often, God answers prayers God delays in answering his prayer, these prayers that you offer. But you could be confident that God will answer your prayers, even, even if it takes 400 years. God has decreed that he would answer your prayers. Fellow Christian, God hears your prayers. Do not be put off by any delay. You can pray to the same God that heard and answered Zechariah's prayers. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me want to pray a lot more. 
There's a, there's a confidence that, that comes through understanding that, that God is faithful, even, even when there's a, a delay, even when there's a very, very long delay. We could be confident in God's character, that God is faithful to his promises. Well, the angel tells Zechariah that the boy's name would be John, the meaning of which is obviously quite familiar to me. It means the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. I've experienced that. And if you're here as a Christian, you have experienced it as well. The Lord would be gracious. Deliverance would come, but not directly through John. John was merely the forerunner. He was the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. The angel continues, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. So the angel speaks first of the joy that, that John would bring his aged father, and, and obviously, by extension, his aged mother as well. But the joy was not limited to them. Many would rejoice at his birth. Many would rejoice at John's birth, but again, not because of John himself, but because of the one who John prepared the way for. Many would re rejoice at John's birth, but again, many others would not rejoice. The Pharisees and many others would, would reject the message that John brought. They would reject John. They would reject the Messiah. They would not repent. They would not come to faith. But this message of joy is another common theme in Luke and Acts. Rejoice that your name is in the Lamb's book of life, 1020. There's joy at the healing of a crippled woman in, at 1317. There's, there's joy at finding, finding that which was lost in Luke 15, 5 to 7. There's joy at Luke's invitation to Zacchaeus in 19.6. There's even joy while suffering for the name of Christ in Acts 5.41. You have been given the same Messiah as John was given. You also proclaim the same Messiah that John proclaimed. You too can spread joy through the message of the Messiah. Are you faithful to spread that joy? Are you faithful to tell everyone who will listen and even those who won't that Jesus Christ is coming? Again, John's message was in the first incarnation. We're proclaiming the message of his return. This is a message that you have been entrusted with to tell others about the coming king. But the angel had something even more astonishing to declare. That John would be great before the Lord. Now, those are some amazing words. We don't hear them very often in the scriptures, being, someone being great before the Lord. As I explained earlier, Jesus himself testified of John's greatness in Luke 7, 27 and 28. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So John's greatness, again, is not in and of himself. John's greatness is in the, the one who he came to, to proclaim. John had a vital role to play in God's plan of redemption. 
John was to be set apart. He was to have no alcohol. Again, this isn't saying that, that alcohol, that drinking alcohol is wrong. It's drunkenness that's a sin. But repeatedly in the scriptures, we see abstinence as a mark of consecration. Nazarites, like Samson, for example, were not to touch alcohol or even the, the fruit of the vine. John was not a Nazarite, though. There's, there's no prohibition here against him cutting his hair or, or coming into contact with a dead body. But his, his role is in some senses parallel to that of a Nazarite being consecrated to the Lord's service, even from the womb. Well, this brings us to another astonishing statement, that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is the sort of language that we see referring to, to the Nazarites. But as we see with Samson, and, and so often in the, New Testament, in the Old Testament, rather, that, that the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit would come and go. The, the Holy Spirit would come and go in the, the life of, of believers and even unbelievers, as we see with King Saul in the Old Testament. The filling of the Holy Spirit is, a, is not a common theme in Luke's Gospel account, but it's obviously a major focus in Acts. We're going to see the fulfillment of this filling of, of John with the Holy Spirit in the womb in, in, a, in a, a couple of weeks when, when, uh, when Mary greets Elizabeth in John 1.41. John leaps in his mother's womb. Now, I have absolutely no idea. Like, I've, I've put my hand on, on, Jane's, uh, on Jane's tummy when, when they, uh, many times when, the, when the, she was pregnant with the kids. And, and Vivian was especially, she was very lively. She's really lived up to her name. But, but this baby actually leapt in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, we're, we're told, um, pronounced a blessing on Mary and on the fruit of her womb. The Holy Spirit also plays a key role in the, the announcement of, of, of Jesus, in the, in the birth of Jesus, where, the, the, where Mary is told that she will conceive through the Holy Spirit, 135. And then Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies concerning John and Jesus in his Benedictus in chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. Then we see also at Jesus' dedication in the temple that, that Simeon is prophesying concerning, concerning Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Um, John, or Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. It's also implied that, that Mary, a prophet, that Anna, rather, a prophetess, prophesied over Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit as well in, in chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. So what we see taking place here at the, the announcement of the birth of John, the announcement of the birth of Jesus, and then in their infancy, we see that John is, is coming into the world as a, as a prophetic voice after 400 years of silence. And John leaping in his mother's womb is, is John's first testimony. It's his first prophetic witness to Jesus. This is John's first witness. And John is the first witness. There's going to be many more witnesses in, as we read about after Acts, Acts verse, or chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the end of the earth. Brothers and sisters, you are in that line of succession. You have been given the same witness that John the Baptist had to testify of the Messiah, to testify of the Messiah 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. So John is certainly a prophet, but Jesus declares that he is actually more than a prophet. J John is, is, also serves as a, as a transitional figure, again from Dilbach, who describes him as a, as, as a bridge between promise and fulfillment saying that John the Baptist is a precursor to God's coming ministry of the Spirit in the church when the Spirit will be given not just to a few, but to all who believe. So again, John forms a transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between what God was doing in Israel and what God is going to do through Christ in the power of the Spirit in the church. So John forms a bridge between these, these two massive epochs of church history. So then he's, he's the one who is going to, to pre prepare the way for the Messiah. The angel continues, verses 16 and 17. He will turn the children of Israel to the, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the power of the, in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the dis disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the, peep, for the Lord a people prepared. So John would prepare the people, turning many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is a message of reconciliation between, between God and man. John tells us, that John the Baptist's words are that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 Now John does not, does not turn anybody's heart in his own power, but he does so in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same ministry that, that Elijah had, the same spirit and power as Elijah. This also reminds us of the, the end time ministry of Elijah. So John has, has also the, me the message of reconciliation between families, turning the hearts of fathers to their children, and also in turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to the ways of the Lord. So, so John's then is, is a ministry of, of preparation. John is preparing God's people for the coming Christ. God is telling elect Israel through John that the Messiah is coming to repent and to be prepared. Now Luke's overall focus, as we saw last week, is, is on the Gentiles, but, but you can't tell the story that's taking place here without talking about Israel. The story starts with Israel. God is coming to redeem his people, but not from captivity to the Romans, but from captivity to sin. And this is all fulfillment of God's promise. This is straight out of the book of, of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. I preached on this, I think, three years ago. But please turn with me there to, to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight... Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And now jump down to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Again, these are the last, very last words in the Old Testament. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there is a sense in which, in which John the Baptist is a, is a partial fulfillment of that prophecy. But the... But looking at prophecy in the scriptures is, is often like looking at peaks of a mountain in the distance. There, there are really multiple fulfillments of these prophecies. There is more of that same prophecy that is going to be fulfilled around the time of Christ's return. But here we see it there at the end of, of Malachi and then in Luke chapter 1. With, we, have, we go from the last prophetic words in the Old Testament scriptures, the last words of the scriptures. Now jumping ahead 400 years later, these are the first prophetic words of the New Testament scriptures. The prophetic gift was, was reignited to prepare the way. And so John's ministry is of paramount importance. John's is a ministry, again, of, of preparation and also reconciliation. Now, this is not the same call as the gospel call. This is, this is not quite the, the universal call of repentance, but again, preparation specifically for Israel. We'll see when we get to it, years hence in, in the book of Acts, that, that, that there's a, a different baptism even that, that John had. His baptism of repentance is, is different from the baptism in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the message here to Israel is to turn or to return to God. And though he's not yet mentioned by name, John's message is that Jesus is coming. Brothers and sisters, ours is a ministry of preparation for Jesus too. Again, not a, not a, a ministry of, of preparation for his incarnation, but for his return. And ours is also a ministry of reconciliation. Again, not between fathers and their children, though that could be the fruit of the gospel, but between the father and all of his children. Conrad and Bayway posted on, on Facebook on Thursday, he said that John the Baptist really challenges me. John was content to, to be but a voice, preparing the way for Jesus. He preached repentance, baptized Jesus, was arrested and killed. His historic job was done. And he, he prayed, say, may God help me to be like him, helping me to prepare the way for Jesus to save people. Is that your prayer? Are you praying that God would help you to prepare the way for Jesus? This is, this is not just a ministry for a select few. This is the message that, that all of us have been given. This, this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, this, this privilege we have of being able to prepare the way for Jesus. To be able to speak the words of the gospel. To be able to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. Trusting that God would, would work through our words and the power of His Spirit to save his people. Well, finally, we see in verses 18 to 25, the promise guaranteed. Here we see Zechariah's response to the gospel. Rather than displaying faith, he doubts. 
He says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Again, this should sound familiar to you. We've, we've heard this, this before. This is a page straight out of, out of Sarah's book. She responded very similarly. She doubted that, that because she was old and because her husband was old, that God was able to work in that situation. Zechariah here is looking for confirmation. How will I know? He's, he's looking for a sign. I see a parallel here with Gideon. God had told Gideon in, in Judges chapter 6 that, that God was going to use Gideon to deliver Israel from the Midianites. But Gideon doubted. Gideon asked for a sign. He, he lays out a fleece. He says, well, if the fleece is wet with dew and the ground around it is dry, then I'll know that you're going to deliver, deliver Israel from the Midianites through me. And then sure enough, he woke up the next morning and, and the, the fleece was soaking wet, enough so that he was able to wring it out and fill a bowl full of water. But that wasn't enough for Gideon. He said, okay, I'm going to test you again, God. And he says, this time I'm going to put the fleece out and if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, then I'll know. You know, I don't know about you, but I, I heard many times as a young Christian that, that Gideon was an example for us, that, that we should lay out a fleece to test God. Gideon is not there as an example for us to follow. Gideon is there as an example of, of what God can do through someone who is unfaithful. We see this similarly with Zechariah as well. Zechariah doubted God. He doubted this was actually able to happen. Even though he prayed for it, we're sure, we could be confident that, that he had prayed again and again for this. When you pray, are your, are your prayers mixed with doubt that God isn't really able to do what He's promised that He would do? Now again, God has not promised, God has never promised, or had never promised that He would provide Zechariah and Elizabeth with a child. We can only lay hold of those things in Scripture that are guaranteed promises to us. But do you believe that God is able to deliver even those things that, that you desire so earnestly in your heart. Now God sometimes condescends to answer, answer these requests and, and does provide signs, but it's often not as expected or as is, I'm sure, the case this time, as hoped. So now the angel responds to Zechariah. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which would be fulfilled in their time. Gabriel is the same angel who appeared to Daniel in Daniel chapters 8 and 9. Gabriel means man of God. And, he's, and he, like I told the kids, he's, he's one of the two angels that are mentioned by name in the scriptures. The other, again, is Michael, who's presented as a warrior. Gabriel, though, is a messenger. Sinclair Ferguson points out that, that he was sent directly from the throne of God to bring news of God's purposes to God's people. Gabriel was right there in the throne room of God, personally given this instruction by God to go to Zechariah at this time with this message. Zechariah is an important emissary not to be trifled with. 
Gabriel was sent to bring good news. But when he doubted, he was doubting not just Gabriel, but Zechariah was doubting God. And so Gabriel says, you didn't believe my words. You won't speak any words. The sign is a reminder of Zechariah's lack of faith. But more than that, the sign was a guarantee that God would accomplish that which he said he would accomplish. Of God's faithfulness to accomplish his will. Now we'll see next week that Mary is also going to receive a sign in the conception that's going to take place in her womb. Gabriel has an even more important message for her and a measurably more important message when we look at that next week. So this good news then is at least obliquely a, a reference to the best of all news, to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the meanwhile, while all this is taking place inside the holy place, that the people are outside wondering what on earth is going on. Because offering incense would have been a relatively quick job. And I wonder if what was going on in the people's minds would have been what, what, what the, the, the warnings that take place regarding the, the, the high priest going to the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. They're wondering, has, has Zechariah been struck dead in there? But then when he appears, making signs and, and unable to, the, to speak to the people, it, it became clear that he had seen a vision in the holy place. But then he didn't go home directly after this. His, his service in the, in the temple would have taken place for a whole week, so he stayed for the rest of his service there. He didn't have a cell phone to call his wife. I guess since he couldn't speak, he probably would have had to text her. But man, don't ever text your wife with, with, with big news. But Luke then shows us an, another personal touch. Elizabeth's response. Now we, we see her hiding herself, not sure wh why she did this, but it's possible that, that it might have been so that it would, until that time, when it the five months would have taken time, for she definitely would have been showing by that time. And it would have been obvious that the Lord had looked on her and taken away her approach. But, but she responds with relief. She responds with joy. With relief and joy at, at what the Lord has done in, in taking away her reproach. Remember that, that even though Zechariah had a high position as a priest, that, that there, there was reproach involved with being childless. And after all of those years, the Lord had answered their prayer and taken away her reproach. So this we, we, see, we see another one of the key themes in Luke's gospel, this the idea of, of welcoming those who are, who are on the outside looking in. Elizabeth had borne reproach for her childlessness, but she would be no longer bearing any reproach for this. So it's certainly what she's rejoicing over what the Lord has done for her, but, but this is not just what the Lord has done for her. This is what the Lord has done for, for his people, for elect Israel. With the announcement of John's birth, God is no longer silent. He has sent his messenger to deliver the message. People, get ready. Get ready. And John's message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Again, John's coming birth is the fulfillment in part of the promise in Malachi at the end of the, Lord, of the, at the, end of the Old Testament. 
So with the, we go from the, the last words of the Old Testament now into what are really, at least chronologically, the first words of the, of the New Testament. This is the backstory behind the birth of John. So again, we see in this, we see how the Lord is, is breaking into history. We see how the Lord is breaking into history in faithfulness to his promises as a, to, to pr- prepare the way to, for a herald to come of the herald, to prepare the way for the preparer. As you were here this morning sitting in, in this church, are you prepared? Are you prepared for the coming of the Messiah? Lord Jesus is going to return in the same way that he departed. Now the only way you can prepare is by repenting and turning to Jesus Christ in faith. Are you prepared? Are you ready for that day? That day might come tomorrow. It might even be today. The Messiah is coming back. The Messiah is coming back. He will return. He will return to bring swift and final judgment on all of his adversaries. Your only hope and my only hope is to be dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ, and that he has borne our guilt, that he is a propitiation, that he has been the sacrifice to take away our sins. That is the only way you can prepare by putting your trust, your faith in the Messiah. Let's pray together. Faithful God, we praise you that you will accomplish everything that you have promised. Lord Jesus, we praise you that as we live in this time between the already and the not yet, as we eagerly await your return, we pray that you would come, Lord Jesus. We, we pray that, that, you would be, that you would come quickly. We pray that you would help us to pray for your return. And we pray, Lord, until that time that you would help us to continue to prepare ourselves by trusting in you and you alone. By continually turning away from our sins and, and resting our faith in you. And we pray that you would use us Lord, in a way parallel to John the Baptist, that then the power of the Holy Spirit that you would help us, Lord, to help others to prepare. Lord, that you'd help us to go with this ministry of, of preparation and reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.